Goodbyes of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, George Gissing's writing as we get into the odd women. Yes, this is another oral exam series episode, but I'm not going to read any large essays during this. I'm also going to give us some leeway in terms of having a little bit of rambling at the beginning of the podcast, but I will warn you ahead of time, if you listened to the last few episodes and you had the joy of, of hearing me read part of my essays, I do have two short response paragraphs that I'm going to read just for kicks and giggles and to also kind of grasp the material a little bit more because you have to understand, I haven't read this book since 2019. I have been in grad school since fall of 2018, and my journey has been very unique and very painful. I have no nostalgia for this era whatsoever, and I was hoping when I I started grad school that I would kind of reclaim some of the feelings and experiences that I had in undergrad, and that was just wishful thinking. So now I hear, here I am at the tail end of everything. My thesis defense is coming up. My oral exams are going to be next month. I haven't heard back from my foreign language, language exam, but I have to assume that I passed. Otherwise, I'm up shit's Creek. But never mind any of that. I know that all you Jane Campion fans are so pleased with yourself You know, a couple of episodes ago, I went on this whole thing about Sam Elliott's Mark Maron podcast. And by the way, I haven't heard a fucking peep out of Mark Maron since that episode dropped. And I listened to one of his recent episodes when he was interviewing Keith Richards. He didn't mention it at all. So... I assume that he's just letting things happen as they they do, just as Sam Elliott has. Sam Elliott hasn't commented on anything since then. And, you know, if you're a a respectable person and you actually listened to the interview and you still come out of it thinking that Sam Elliott said something that was homophobic or offensive, well, you know, you're entitled to that opinion. I listened to it, and I didn't hear anything objectionable, but I'm just a straight white guy. So, it wasn't something that was brought up for um, by Mark Marin as a point of contention. Marin, as the interviewer, did not ask him to uh, explain further on what he meant by his statements. Uh Marin more or less baited him into talking about that fucking movie. And then Jane Campion comes along and calls him a bitch moments before she gets on stage and decides to be a racist piece of shit by demeaning Venus and Serena Williams' experience because they, quote-unquote, only play against women. Never mind all of the terrible atrocities of human nature and what have you that they experienced growing up as African-American women and the adversity that they faced as being African-American women competing in sports 
a sport that is largely dominated and still is largely dominated by men. Yes, Jane Campion is is facing so much adversity with people like Sam Elliott criticizing her movie. Yeah, I I, I cackled like a, a wild hyena when I read what she said because I I knew that Jane Campion was a pretentious piece of shit. I've watched her movies. Anyway, beyond that, what else do we have to talk about? Because I don't know about you, but I've just been trying to get through life lately. I've been doing my job. I've been trying to spend time with my wife. I've been playing a lot of Pokemon. I just finished the main storyline or venture or whatever you want to call it in the Pokemon Legends game, which was a huge disappointment, but I was obligated to play the damn thing. And after I finished it, I was excited to to play around in the open world. And then I realized I have no use for this. And I started playing the Pearl and Diamond remake again. But beyond that, we still don't have access to Pokemon Home on Pokemon Pearl and Diamond or Pokemon Legends. So Game Freak and Nintendo have been fucking with us and taking our money for uh, holding our Pokemon hostage, essentially. I'm drinking some Coke Zero out of my Yeti. That is the beverage for this evening. This is a Friday, by the way. I don't normally record on Fridays, but I recorded last episode on Friday. My wife is working late. She has an event that she's managing, so I'm at home alone until about 8.30, maybe. Maybe 9 o'clock, who knows. And I'm not going to eat dinner until then either, so that's going to be fun. I just choked down some some Slim Jims to kind of help me tide myself over over and I had some veggie pasta for my afternoon snack which wasn't much but that tends to stick with you for a while this is extraordinary podcasting and you are just enthralled you're wondering when I'm going to get to this book that you don't want to read that's the only reason I can think of you looking up the odd women on Spotify or some other podcast app and wanting to listen to someone talk about it it's probably not because you're a fan it's probably because you were assigned in a class or something because Quite frankly, it's not a book that's worth revisiting. And George Gissing was not uh, a terribly gifted author from my perspective. But we'll get into that in a moment. I did want to mention one thing that is on my mind. And that is the fact that I have a friend who is currently serving a prison sentence. And some people who know me know him... But most of the people who would be listening to this podcast would have no idea who he is or why he's in prison. And I'm not going to tell you who he is. I'm not going to tell you what he did. But uh, the subject of podcasting came up in our recent letters to one another. And he was interested in pursuing it once he gets out to kind of tell a story. And I said, well, I, I could produce a series for you. I could have you on as a guest on my podcast. I haven't heard back from him quite yet. Uh, he's, you know, busy being a prisoner. But I have to think about what's in my best interest as well. Because after he was uh, charged with the crime, a lot of his peers 
professionally turned their backs on him, and no one was really interested in his side of the story, and I definitely was, and I am still processing that because he was a dear friend of me, and he, he was also a mentor of sorts. And my wife has provided some perspective as a woman that is much needed for both of us because uh, she's helping me process it and I'm helping him process what he went through, whatever. But it is something that I think I would love to, to pursue in a podcast in some way, even if I was involved anonymously. And I think it would be in his best interest to do it anonymously as well, even though, you, you know, You'd, of course, have his voice. But it's it's kind of sad, the society that we live in, because he didn't do anything like rape or murder. He didn't steal anything. But, you know, he's a pariah for the rest of his life, essentially. And uh, could he have hurt someone? Yeah. Um, he did not pursue this crime with the intention of doing so. Um, he was really hurting himself and his family most of all. So uh, that is something that if his wife can forgive him for that, because she, she seemed to be kind of content that he's serving time and kind of serving a sentence for his, which he referred to as his sins. Um, I think that, um, there are some people who are kind of coming around that used to know him or used to associate themselves with him, but they're not going to do so publicly. And I don't know how, how much I can publicly either. So, you know, not all friendships have to be public affairs, but still there's a lot to consider. Beyond that, how are you doing? I'm done talking. I'm done bullshitting. This has been a terrible episode. Not really. It might be the best episode. I doubt it. But I'm going to pick up this book and we're going to talk about it. I don't normally provide a lot of context for the books that I'm reading on the podcast, but for this one I'll provide just a little bit off the top of my head. This novel deals with marriage and class structure, much like the last two novels that I read on the podcast, Shirley and Mary Barton. Uh, being of the lower class is a huge part of this and trying to ascend from that status and uh, make something better for yourself, even if it means personal sacrifice, like marrying an old lech. But it is particularly most interesting from the perspective of the young lady whose name escapes me, who ends up marrying a much older man who stalks her throughout the novel. And, of course, she's not happy in that marriage, but whatever. We're going to get more into that. And I'm, of course, only going to do one episode on this book. So if you're hoping for a conclusion or if you're hoping for an audiobook podcast, obviously you've come to the wrong place. I've said that a lot in the last few episodes. This is not an audiobook podcast, but I honestly don't know what people are expecting other than, you know, hearing me read and talk about this shit. But unlike the last episode, I'm going to start reading. Chapter 1 is called The Fold and the Shepherd. So tomorrow, Alice, said Dr. Madden as he walked with his eldest daughter on the coast downs by Clevedon, I shall take steps for insuring my life for a thousand pounds. It was the outcome of a long and intimate conversation. 
Alice Madden, aged 19, a plain, shy, gentle-mannered girl, short of stature and in movement something less than graceful, wore a pleased look as she glanced at her father's face and then turned her eye across the blue channel to the Welsh hills. She was flattered by the confidence reposed in her, for Dr. Madden, reticent by nature, had never been known to speak in the domestic circle without his punctuary affairs. He seemed to be the kind of man who would inspire his children with affection, grave but benign, amiably diffident, with a hint of lurking mirthfulness about his eyes and lips, and today he was in the best of humors, professional prospects, as he had just explained to Alice, were more encouraging than Heathrow. For twenty years, he had practiced medicine at Clevedon, but with such trifling emolument that the needs of his large family left him scarce a margin over expenditure. Now at the age of 49, it was 1872, he looked forward with a larger hope. Might he not reasonably count on 10 or 15 more years of activity? Clevedon was growing in repute and a as a seaside resort, new houses were rising. Assuredly, his practice would continue to extend. Ladies and gentlemen, we are setting our characters up for failure. Whenever you start a book out talking about optimism and putting all of your eggs in one basket, you know that something's going to happen. I don't think girls ought to be troubled about this kind of thing, he added apolog apologetically. Let men grapple with the world, for as the old hymn says, tis their nature too. I should grieve in indeed if I thought my girls would ever have to distress themselves about money matters, but I find I've got into the habit, Alice, of talking to you very much as I should talk with your dear mother if she were with us. Ah, yes, we have a single parent who has lost his spouse and is charged with raising his children alone. Classic. Mrs. Madden, having given birth to six daughters, had fulfilled her function in this wonderful world. For upon two years, she had been resting in the old churchyard that looks upon the Severn Sea. Father and daughter sighed as they recalled her memory. A sweet, calm, unpretending woman, Admirable in her domesticities in speech and thought, distinguished by a native refinement, which in the most... I might be able to turn this page, but it's sticking. These are the, the follies of reading a paperback book while you're on mic. Fastitiousness. No. Fastuitous? Eyes. Would have established her claim to the title of the lady. She had known but little repose and secret anxieties told upon her countenance long before the final collapse of health. And yet, pursued the doctor, doctor only by courtesy, when he had stooped to pluck and examine a flower. I made a point of never discussing these matters with her. As no doubt you guess, life has been rather an uphill journey with us. But the home must be guarded against sordid cares to the last possible moment. Nothing upsets me more than the sight of those poor homes where wife and children are obliged to talk from morning to night of how the sorry earnings shall be laid out. No, no, women, old or young, should never have to think about money. I love this just casual sexism. 
The magnificent summer sunshine and the western breeze that tasted of ocean heightened his natural cheeriness. Dr. Medden fell into a familiar strain of precedence. There will come a day, Alice, when neither man nor woman is troubled with such shorted care. Not yet a while, no, no, but the day will come. Human beings are not destined to struggle forever like beasts of prey. Give them time. Let civilization grow. You know what our poet says. There the common sense of most shall hold a fretful realm in awe. He quoted the couplet with a subdued fervor which characterized the man and explained his worldly lot. Elnaka Madden should never have entered the medical profession. Did I pronounce his Elkana, maybe? I don't know. Who the fuck cares? Merely humanitarian humanitarianism had prompted the choice of his dreamy youth. He became an empiric nothing more. Our poet, said the doctor, Clevedon was chiefly interesting to him for its literary associations. Tennyson, he worshipped. He never passed Coleridge's cottage without bowing in spirit. From the contact of coarse actualities, his nature shrank. When he and Alice returned from their walk, it was the hour of family tea. A guest was present this afternoon. The eight persons who sat down to table were as many as the little parlor could comfortably contain. Of the sisters, next in age to Alice came Virginia, a pretty but delicate girl of 17. Gertrude, Martha, and Isabel, ranging from 14 to 10, had no physical charm but that of youthfulness. Isabel surpassed her eldest sister and downright plainness of feature. The youngest, Monaco, was a bonny little maiden, only just five years old, dark and bright-eyed. So, as you may have surmised, I'm pretty sure that this father dies pretty soon. And then we're left with Alice, Virginia, Gertrude, Martha, and Isabel with Monica in tow. But it's kind of like having a a favorite Spice Girl. You can pick one out of the bunch and decide that they're your favorite, but in the end, none of them really matter because in this society, women are treated as commodities. So if you're not married by a certain age, you're considered an odd woman of sorts. So these women, especially those older than Alice, are considered um, kind of like scraps where only men who would take pity on them would marry them whereas someone like Alice who's younger she can attract a, a man much easier within the society boundaries and guidelines. I have a couple of response essays they're just one paragraph long that I did back in 2019 but I am going to read them for the sake of contextualizing things and I'm going to be mentioning names and quoting things that we haven't gotten to yet in the book. I don't know that we're necessarily reading this in the most chronological way anyway. But the most striking aspect of George Gissing's The Odd Women centers on marriage and how potential brides fit into class structure. Miss Barfoot in particular vocalizes her opinions on class and a woman's place in society. Quote, I think those divisions are anything but artificial. In the uneducated classes, I have no interest whatsoever. 
Barfoot views the lower class as insipid and beneath her, yet she believes the class structure is man-made rather than a predestination. She often discusses a woman's place in marriage and how men should not marry outside of their station, which would mean that all of the women in this book were fucking screwed. So we're going to go on to the next response. Later in The Odd Women, the amusing stalker Widowson encounters Lady Horrocks, who shares similarities with Miss Barfoot in that she believes marriage stands as a finite institution. Gissing writes, quote, Some marry for a good reason, some for a bad, and mostly it all comes to the same in the end. The continuous idea throughout the novel revolves around the women who men choose as brides and their place in marriage. Monica marries Widowson partially because of his money, and her beauty is her only currency. Her sister's appear too homely to attract a Widdowson type, and Monica perishes the thought of aging into an old woman, or into an odd woman in this case. Horrocks statement begs the question, which sex marries for a good or bad reason? Monica marries for stability, and Widdowson wants a homemaker to fend off loneliness. While Monica achieves her goal and this lifestyle disappoints her. Widdowson never receives the satisfaction he desires. This results, as Horrocks states, in an unhappy ending. Before I talk about Rhoda Nunn, or rather read about her, I'm going to read this paragraph that I highlighted on page 7. In educating them as well as circumstances allowed, he conceived that he was doing the next best thing to saving money, for if a fatality befell... Teaching would always be their resource. The thought, however, of his girls having to work for money was so utterly repulsive to him that he could never seriously dwell upon it. George Gissing is not very good at having a poker face, is he? The guest at table, and yes, this says the guest at table, not at the table or at a table. The guest at table was a young girl named Rhoda Nunn, Tall, thin, eager-looking, but with a promise of bodily vigor. She was singled at a glance as no member of the, matter, of the Madden family. Her immaturity, but fifteen, she looked two years older, appeared in nervous restlessness, and in her manner of speaking, childish at times, in the hustling of inconsequent thoughts, yet striving to imitate the talk of her seniors. She had a good head in both senses of the phrase, might or might not develop a certain beauty, but would assuredly put forth the fruits of intellect. Her mother, an invalid, was spending the summer months at Clevedon with Dr. Madden for medical advisor, and in this way the girl became friendly with the Madden household. Its younger members she treated rather condescendingly, childish things she had long ago put away, and her sole pleasure was an intellectual talk. With a frankness peculiar to her, indicative of pride, Miss Nunn let it be known that she would have to earn her living, probably as a schoolteacher, study for examinations occupied most of her day, and her hours of leisure were frequently spent at either the Maddens or with a family named Smithson, people whose people, these latter, for whom she had a profound and somewhat mysterious admiration. Mr. Smithson was a, you don't care about this shit, and I don't either. Alice and Virginia commented on the fact in their private colloquy 
With a shamefaced amusement, they feared that it spoke ill for the young lady's breeding. None the less they thought Rhoda a remarkable person and listened to her utterances respectfully. This is all boring bullshit. We don't care about it. But I have to establish characters to a degree before I can continue just skipping through the book. So George Gissing spends all this time developing Dr. Baden as a really important character, and on page 10 he kills him in a paragraph. For some time, the doctor had been intending to buy a new horse. His faithful old roadster was very weak in the knees. As in other matters, so in this, postponement became fatality. The horse stumbled and fell, and its driver was flung head forward into the road. Some hours later, they brought him to his home, and for a day or two, there were hopes that he might rally, but the sufferer's respite only permitted him to dictate and sign a brief will. This duty performed, Dr. Madden closed his lips forever. Oh, how nice of George Gissing to kill off this person with uh, such dignity. And then we get into chapter two. Just before Christmas of 1887, a lady passed her 20s and with a look of discouraged weariness on her thin face, knocked at a house door in a little street by Lavender Hill. A card in the window gave notice that a bedroom was here to let. When the door opened and a clean, grave elderly woman presented herself, the visitor regarding her anxiously made known that she was in search of lodging. It may be for a few weeks only, or it may be for a longer period, she said in a low, tired voice, with an accent of good breeding. I have difficulty in finding precisely what I want. One room would be sufficient, and I ask for very little attendance. She had but one room to let, replied the other. It might be inspected. They went upstairs. The room was at the back of the house, small but neatly furnished. Its appearance seemed to gratify the visitor, for she smiled timidly. By now my audience is asleep. We're just going to skip ahead here. Miss Madden, my luggage is at the railway station. It shall be brought here this evening, and, as I am quite unknown to you, I should be glad to pay my rent in advance. Well, I don't ask for that, but it's just as you like. Then I will pay you five and sixpence at once. Be so kind as to let me have a receipt. So Miss Madden established herself at Lavender Hill and dwelt there alone for three months. She received letters frequently and only one person called upon her. This was her sister Monica, now serving at a draper's in Walworth Road. The young lady came every Sunday and in bad weather spent the whole day up in the little bedroom. Lodger and landlady were on remarkably good terms. The one paid her dues with exactness, and the other did many a little kindness not bargained for in the original contract. Time went on, the spring of 88. Then one afternoon, Miss Madden descended to the kitchen and tapped her usual timid way at the door. Are you at leisure, Miss Conesby? Could I have a little conversation with you? The landlady was alone, and with no more engrossing occupation than the ironing of some linen, she had recently washed. I don't understand why we need to know this. I have mentioned my older sister now and then. I am sorry to say she is leaving her post with the family at Hertford. The children are going to school so that her services are no longer needed. Indeed? Yes. For a shorter or longer period, she will be in need of a home. Now it's occurred to me, Miss Conesby, that, that I would ask 
you whether you would have any objection to her sharing my room with me. Of course, there would be an extra payment. The room is small for two persons, but then the arrangement would only be temporary. My sister is good and experienced teacher, and I am sure she will have no difficulty in obtaining another engagement. Miss Conesby reflected, but without a shade of discontent. By this time, she knew that her lodger was thoroughly to be trusted. Well, it's if you can manage. I don't see as I could have any fault to find if you thought you could both live in that little room. And as for the rent, I should be quite satisfied if we said six shillings instead of five and six. The way they do math here. Thank you, Miss Consby. Thank you very much indeed. I will write to my sister at once. The news will be a great relief to her. We shall have quite an enjoyable little holiday together. See, this whole bullshit here with the scene of... Uh, you could summarize it in a much smaller paragraph. Instead, we're having this whole detailed explanation as to why this woman is living with this older woman. So I need to get through the next couple of pages pretty quickly, so bear with me. Virginia, about 33, had also an unhealthy look, but the poverty or vitation of her blood manifested itself in less unsightly forms. One saw that she had been comely, and from certain points of view her countenance still had grace, a sweetness, all the more noticeable because of its threatened extinction. For as she was rapidly aging, her lax lips grew laxer, with emphasis of a characteristic one would rather not have perceived there. Her eyes sank into deeper hollows. Wrinkles extended their network. The flesh of her neck wore away. Her tall, meager body did not seem strong enough to hold itself upright. I have to say that these days, women are holding up pretty well, men and women, are holding up pretty well, well into their 50s and 60s, and the thought of portraying a woman who is 33, just three years older than me, as old and tired is so foreign to me. It's something that still affects women who are in modeling and acting these days, too. Alice had brown hair, but very little of it. Virginia's was inclined to be ruddy. It surmounted her small head in coils and plates, not without beauty. The voice of her elder sister had contracted an unpleasant hoarseness, but she spoke with good enunciation. A slight stiffness and pedantry of phrase came, no doubt, of her scholastic habits. Virginia was much more natural in manner and fluent in speech, even as she moved far more gracefully. It was now sixteen years since the death of, Miss, of Dr. Madden of Clevenham. We don't need to know where he is, or where he's from. All that matters is that he's fucking dead. The story of his daughter's lives in the interval may be told with brevity suitable to so unexcitedly a narrative. Oh, thank God, George Gissing, that you're deciding to summarize something for a fucking change. Alice obtained a situation as nursery governess at 16 pounds a year. Virginia was fortunate enough to be accepted as a companion by a gentlewoman at Weston Supermare. Is that a real place? Western super mayor? Her payment, 12 pounds. Gertrude, 14 years old, also went to Weston where she was offered employment in a fancy goods shop. Her payment, nothing at all but lodging, board, and dress assured to her. Ten years went by and saw many changes. Gertrude and Martha were dead. It's easier to just make up characters and kill them, isn't it? 
The former of consumption, the other drowned by the overturning of a pleasure boat. Mr. Hungerford was also dead, and a new guardian administered the fund, which was still a common property of the four surviving daughters. Alice was still... Alice plied her domestic teaching. Virginia remained a companion. Isabel, now age 20, taught in a board school at Bridgewater, and Monica, just 15, was on the point of being apprenticed to a draper in Weston, where Virginia abode. To serve behind a counter would not have been Monica's choice if any more liberal employment had seemed within her reach. She had no aptitude what, whatever for giving instruction. Indeed, had no aptitude for anything but being a pretty, cheerful, engaging girl, much depended on the love and gentleness of those about her. So we already know that Monica is going to make things so much better for us in this fucking terrible-ass book because uh, she's about to be stalked. Moving on to page 38 in the chapter Monica's Majority. While she mused thus, a profound discouragement settled on her sweet face. Someone took a seat by her on the same bench, is to say. Glancing aside, she saw that it was an oldish man with grizzled whiskers and rather a stern visage. Monica sighed. Was it possible that he had heard her? He looked this way and with curiosity. Ashamed of herself, she kept her eyes averted for a long time. Presently, following the movement of a boat, her face turned unconsciously toward the silent companion. Again, he was looking at her, and he spoke. The gravity of his appearance and manner, the good-natured commonplace that fell from his lips, could not alarm her. A dialogue began, and went on for about half an hour. How old might he be? After all... He was probably not 50, perchance not more than 40. His utterance fell short of perfect refinement, but seemed that of an educated man, and certainly his clothes were such as a gentleman wears. He had a thin, hairy, he had thin, hairy hands, unmarked for any effect of labor. The nails could not have been better cared for. Was it a bad sign that he carried neither gloves nor a walking stick? His talk aimed at nothing but sober friendliness. It was perfectly inoffensive, indeed respectful. Now and then, not too often, he fixed his eyes upon her for an instant. After the introductory phrases, Jesus Christ, he mentioned that he had a long drive alone. His horse was baiting in preparation for the journey back to London. He He often took such drives in the summer, though generally on a weekday. The magnificent sky tempted it out this morning. He lived at Hearn Hill. At length, he ventured a question. Monica affected no reluctance to tell him that she was in a house of business, that she had relatives in London, that only by chance she found herself alone today. I should be sorry if I never saw you again. These words he muttered with embarrassment, his eyes on the ground. Monica could only keep silent. Half an hour ago, she would have not have thought it possible for any remark of this man seriously to occupy her mind, yet now she waited for the next sentence in discomposure, which was quite free from resentment. We meet in this casual way and talk and then say goodbye. Why mayn't I tell you that you interest me very much and that I am afraid to trust only to chance for another meeting? 
If you were a man, he smiled, I could give you my card and ask you to my house. The card I may at all events offer. While speaking, he drew out a little case and laid a visiting card on the bench within Monica's reach. Murmuring her thank you, she took a piece of pasteboard and did not look at it. You are on my side of the river, he continued. May I not hope to see you some day when you are walking? All days and times are the same to me, but I am afraid it is only Sunday that you are at leisure. Yes, only on a Sunday. It took a long time and many circumlations, but in the end an appointment was made. Monica would see her acquaintance next Sunday evening on the riverfront of Battersea Park. If it rained, then Sunday after. She was ashamed and confused. Other girls were constantly doing this kind of thing. Other girls in business. But it seemed to put her on the level of a servant. And why had she consented? The man could never be anything to her. He was too old, too hard-featured, too grave. Well, on that very account there would be no harm in meeting him. In truth... She had not felt the courage to refuse in a manner. He had overawed her. I seem to recall Widowson getting a lot more creepy and uh, audacious in his approach to Monica. I'm skipping ahead to chapter 7, where she actually meets him. A week's notice to her employers would release Monica from the engagement in Walworth Road. Such notice must be given on a Monday, so that if she could at all make up her mind to accept Mr. B- Miss Barfoot's offer. The coming week would be her last of slavery behind the counter. We have like an entire chapter of Barfoot r- ranting and raving about women. I don't recommend it. Anyway, she spent the evening at Lavender Hill, but without change in the mood thus indicated, a strange inquietude appeared in her behavior. It was as though she had been urged to undertake something hard and repugnant. On her return to Walworth Road, just as she came within sight of the shop, she observed a man's figure, some twenty yards distant, which instantly held her attention. The dim gaslight occasioned some uncertainty, but she believed the figure was that of Widowson. He was walking on the other side of the street and away from her. When the man was exactly opposite Scotcher's establishment, he gazed in that direction, but without stopping. Monica hastened, fearing to be seen and approached. Already she had reached the door when Widdison, yes, he it was, turned abruptly to walk back again. His eye was at once upon her, but whether he recognized her or not, Monica could not know. At that moment she opened the door and passed in. A fit of trembling seized her as if she had barely escaped some peril. In the passage, she stood motionless, listening with intensity of dread. She would hear footsteps on the pavement. She expected a ring at the doorbell. If he was so thoughtless as to come to the door, she would on no account see him. But there was no ring, and after a few minutes waiting, she recovered from her self-command. We're skipping ahead to page 75. It was eleven o'clock before they parted, having taken leave of her sisters near the station. Monica turned to walk quickly home. She had gone about half the way when her name was spoken just behind her in Widowson's voice. She stopped, and there stood the man, offering his hand. "'Why are you here at this time?' she asked. "'Not by chance. I had a hope that I might see you.' 
He was gloomy and looked at her searchingly. I'm, I mustn't wait to talk now, Mr. Whittison. It's very late. Very late indeed. It surprised me to see you. Surprised you? Why should it? I mean that it seemed to be very unlikely at this hour. Then how could you have hoped to see me? Monica walked on with an air of displeasure, and Whittison kept beside her, incessantly eyeing her countenance. No, I didn't really think of seeing you, Miss Madden. I wished to be near the place where you were. That was all. You saw me come out, I dare say. No. If you had done, you would have known that I came to meet two ladies, my sisters. I walked with them to the station, and now I'm going home. You seem to think an explanation necessary. Do forgive me. What right have I to ask anything of the kind? But I have been very restless since Sunday. I wish to meet you, if only for a few minutes. Only an hour or two ago I posted a letter to you. Monica said nothing. It was to ask you to meet me next Sunday as we arranged. Shall you be able to do so? I'm afraid I can't. At the end of this week, I leave my place here, and on Sunday I shall be moving to another part of London. You're leaving? You had decided to make the change you spoke of? Yes. And will you tell me where you're going to live? In lodgings near Great Portland Street. I must say good night, Mr. Widdowson. I must indeed. Please, do give me one moment. I can't stay. Good night. It was impossible for him to detain her. Ungracefully, he caught at his hat, made the salute, and moved away with rapid, uneven strides. In less than half an hour, he was back again at this spot. He walked past the shops many times without pausing, his eyes devouring the fronts of the buildings, and noted those windows in which there was a glimmer of light. He saw girls enter by the private door, but Monica did not show again herself. Some time after midnight, when the house had been long, dark, and quiet, perfectly quiet. The uneasy man took a last look and then sought a cab to convey his home. I am curious because, you know, we're led to believe that people generally got up with the sun and went to bed when the sun went, the sun set. I was about to say when the sun went away. And this guy is out here staying up past midnight to stalk this girl. So, doesn't he have to get up in the morning? (laughs) Isn't he fucking tired? I mean, he's supposed to be so fucking old. Listen, I am wilting right now. For God's sakes. I just finished a 40-hour work week, and here I am reading this god-awful fucking book. For God's sakes. All right, we're going to get into these letters that are exchanged between Woodison and Monica, and then we'll see how I feel afterwards. I doubt I want to read more. I'm very sorry that it will be impossible for me to see you next Sunday. All Sunday, I shall be occupied. My oldest sister is leaving London, and Sunday will be my last day with her, perhaps for a long time. Please do not think that I make light of your kindness. When I am settled in my new life, I hope to be able to let you know if it suits me. Sincerely yours, Monica Madden. In the postscript, she mentioned her new address. It was written in very small characters, perhaps an unpurposed indication of the misgiving with 
with which she allowed herself to pen the words. Two days went by, and again a letter from Widowson was delivered. Dear Miss Madden, My chief purpose in writing again so soon is to apologize sincerely for my behavior on Tuesday evening. It was quite unjustifiable. The best way of confessing my fault is to own that I had had a foolish dislike of your walking in the streets unaccompanied at so late an hour. I believe that any man who had newly made your acquaintance and had thought as much as you as I have would have experienced the same feeling. The life which made it impossible for you to see friends at any other time of the day was so evidently unsuited to one of your refinement that I was made angry by the thought of it. Happily, it is coming to an end, and I should be greatly relieved when I know that you have left the house of business. You remember that we are to be friends. I should, I should be much less than your friend if I did not desire for a position very different from which necessity forced upon you. Thank you very much for the promise to tell me how you like the new employment and your new friends. Shall you, not henceforth, be at leisure on the other days beside Sunday? Now, this undoubtedly might be considered a love letter, and it was the first of its kind that Monica had ever received. No man had ever written to her that he was willing to go any distance for the reward of looking at her face. She read the composition many times, and with many thoughts. It did not enchant her presently. She felt it to be dull and prosy, anything but the ideal of a love letter even at this early stage. The remarks considering weren't concerning Widowson made in the bedroom by the girl who fancied her asleep had greatly disturbed her conceit of him. He was old and looked still older to the casual eye. Listen, we get the point, okay? He's gaslighting her into this. He's stalking her, and she really doesn't have much choice but to take her first train out of the fucking slum house, Okay? Her life is not going to get much better than it is now unless she marries someone and he's the first guy to come around even though she's young and apparently attractive. Now look, I can't cover this whole long-ass book in one episode, but I'm going to, to the best of my ability, which is to say I'm not going to. However, we talked about it. We got into it, did we not? Now listen... Things don't end well for everyone in this book, okay? So Virginia becomes an alcoholic. Monica tries having an affair with this guy named fucking Beavis. I wonder where Butthead is. And Rhoda gets engaged and she flounders and there's a fucking baby involved and all this shit. I mean, it's it's not a good book and it's not constructed well. It's written terribly by my standards. And we've only gotten into the first 70 or so pages. So if you're going to actually have to read this for any reason at all, you can't go by me. And quite frankly, if I did like this book, I wouldn't dedicate more than one dedicate more than one episode to this because it's just a pleading disaster. We have established the importance of marriage in society at this period in time and also women's place. Even those who had a higher station in life, as Barfoot put it, they are generally 
thought of as best seen and not heard, even though we have a lot of women talking and giving their thoughts on things. I don't know that any man in this entire book talks about these rules more than women do. And what's strange to me is that they're always caught up in their work. We never really get any inkling that Virginia is able to pursue a romance in her entire life. And the only person who really gets out of it is Rhoda, maybe? Maybe Monica, even though Monica's stuck in this terrible marriage? If this episode is anything, I hope it's entertaining to hear me complain about stuff. But I'm done, okay? I don't want to do it anymore. Next week, we're going to come back with something else. I don't know what yet, but it's not going to be the fucking odd women, okay? I, I, I'll i tell you what. Out of interest, I'm going to pull up my test list, and we're going to go over them together right now, because why not? I've already taken up so much of your time already with this insipid mess, so let's look at the American Lit course we have Invisible Man, Erasure, Fun Home, Diary, Diary of an Ex-Colored Man, Passing, The Yellow Wallpaper, The Awakening, Puddinhead Wilson, The Searchers, Cowards from the Colleges, Good Country People. already went over that on the podcast. John Adams, Cathedral, What You Palm I Will Redeem, Little Miss Sunshine, Grizzly Man, William Wilson, Harold and Maude, A White Shirt, Kindred. I think that What You Palm I Will Redeem will be really good for a podcast because I wrote a really good essay on it. And I did a lot of research on Native Americans in this country. So I think I might do that next week. Until then, I hope that this episode was satisfying to a degree. I release enough of these that it doesn't really matter if I have a bum episode here and there. So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Go away.